2: I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guests are Josh Kornbluth and Jacob Kornbluth. Josh Kornbluth is a monologist.
0: Is that correct? Monologist? I'll say yes. Sometimes I, I, I push back for monologist because I just feel it sounds more muscular, like a lager. But I think monologist is what I've heard most.
2: And his brother, Jacob Kornbluth, who is a documentary filmmaker, which I want to get into a little bit because you have an interesting film coming up with Robert Reich later in the year. And together they have created a film called Love and Taxes, which is based on a monologue, hard G on that one. Yeah. Called Love Probably. and Taxes. Josh Cornbluth. You have eight solo shows, ten solo shows. How many have you actually done?
0: It sounds about right. I've done about eight or ten. Because sometimes, a couple times I did like two shows and I combined them into a third show. It's sort of like, you know, how many presidents have we had? Because there was that one guy who was twice. Yeah, Yeah, so it's uh, very much like Grover
2: Cleveland, I believe was his name.
0: I took it for granted that uh, the listener would fill in Grover Cleveland. (laughs) In fact, I would appreciate if the listener would fill in Grover Cleveland whenever there's a pause in this interview. (laughs)
2: Love and Taxes is... A monologue that was turned into a film, and the film has Jake. You said something. The words you used reenactments in a comically subjective way. Yeah. Monologues for you started with Spalding Gray. Right? Is that
0: correct. Yes, I saw Spalding Gray. Sometime in the 80s, yes, in the sort of early, early to mid-80s, and uh, I wasn't a performer or anything, and I, I saw him perform, and I thought, oh, my God, I love that form. I, I, love, I love what he does. I love his audience, and I want to try to do it.
2: There's a big jump between being a copy editor for alternative magazines and getting in front of a stage. How did that work?
0: There was actually a moment, there was a a going away party that we gave a bunch of us copy editors and some other writers for an editor, the editor of the arts section who was leaving the newspaper I was working at at the time. Which was? The Boston Phoenix. And uh, he was going to the Village Voice. It was was a lateral move. And so we had this party and it was just me and some other young folks there decided we were going to do a sketch. You know, it's just like a little comedy sketch at the going away party. To And I would play the guy who was leaving, his name was Kit Rackless, and other people play other people. And so basically, it was my first performing experience ever. And it had happened, I think, not that long before I saw Spalding Gray. And it actually planted the seed in me. is like, I mean, as exciting as it is to fix a split infinitive, it arguably can be more exciting to do live performance. So did you start just ad-libbing? Did you write a script for that first one? No, because I'm unable to write in my voice of talking. And I'm unable to create stuff, even, that's good if I'm not in front of an audience. So I improvise in front of audiences uh, over and over, and I work with directors then. And then eventually, I actually get it word for word. I repeat it enough and I get it word for word. And that's what I did then. Our father, Paul Cornbluth, had died in 1983. And... All of us in the family were you know, grieving in our various ways. And and in my way, in retrospect, it wasn't really conscious, but in retrospect, it was to, I wanted to tell stories about him. And so what I did was I, I just made little outlines, like keywords, because uh, I'd seen Spalding Gray did that. And, you know, and, and I would uh, go up and that's how I started. I just started going up on stage and improvising. Stuff about what my dad told me, what my mom told me, about communism, about sex. And, and that eventually became my first piece, Josh Kornbluth's Daily World.
2: Did you just approach a theater? How did that
0: work? That was actually, I had moved to San Francisco following a bunch of my friends from the Phoenix to the San Francisco Examiner. And there was a space that opened up in North Beach. It was run by the legendary Enrico Banducci. Well, it actually wasn't run by him. They used his name. It was called, uh, it was called Banducci's. Yeah, I think it was. Anyhow, but he was the cook, uh, and someone else owned it. And <laughs> But they had allowed him to book the basement. There was a little basement space. And what I was told was that they had had a relatively successful musical that had been running there for a while about suicide, and the lead actress had gotten too depressed to go on, and they had to close. And that is actually, honestly, what I heard. So there was a space available, and Enrico said, me, he said, well, you can bring in whoever you can bring in, Uh, an audience, you can take whatever, come in on tickets, and then we'll take the food and drink money, and my little brother Jacob was visiting me at the time, and we have a very happy memory of going all around with uh, putting up these little flyers uh, with my my little brother Jake, who would then grow up to be the great filmmaker sitting next to me, and putting up flyers for people to come see my first show.
2: And for you, Jake, was there any shock in seeing him
1: on stage? The first time I saw him on stage, I was scared. I was 13 years old, and I thought he was... Uh, it's it's the fear of seeing, you know, your brother tell you that, that he wants to be a performer and then have to go and sit in an audience and tell him what you think. And I remember the feeling because I sat in the audience and he was hilarious. And the other thing I noticed, just because it turns out, I didn't know I was going to be a filmmaker then, but I remember watching him and thinking, I can't take my eyes off him he is like he was there was a real presence to him interestingly it's in Guthrie my nephew and his son now too that i see that i saw that too but there was something about sort of watching him which made it seem like this this wasn't crazy this was a good idea for him <laughs> to be a performer and When I came out to visit in San Francisco and we were putting up those flyers, I think there was some debate we had about it was like Josh's last few bucks or something. Do we make the the Xeroxes and put them up on the light post or do you save the money for a rainy day or whatever? You know, do you be practical or Or do you go for it kind of thing, you know? and i remember thinking let's you know of course i was young what did i get? i was like let's go for it let's blow this money let's make the flyers let's do it because you know it felt like there was something there i could feel the passion in him to do it and i could feel that he had the real ability even from a very young age when i i didn't feel like i was qualified to judge i thought he had something
0: and the fact that jake was there you know it, it, like putting in his labor his his sweat equity you know whatever you know helping me to that we did this act together this familiar, of, of putting up these flyers and that he was as enthusiastic enough about this show that I had no idea how what it was going to be or how it was going to do. That he was enthusiastic enough to go around and help promote it for me. That was that was huge.
2: Love and Taxes mostly takes place, I guess, in the late mid mid to late nineties. Is that correct?
0: It takes place during the uh, one of the George W. Bush administration.
2: The real Haiku Tunnel opened in September two thousand one. Correct. That's right. The correct. Film. So yeah. therefore, most of the action would have probably happened right around there. Or a little bit before, because you're making the movie, and the movie takes months to make. That is true. So, in point of fact, Clinton was actually the president during most of the movie,
1: Wait, 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 back
0: up. You're saying there was a Clinton who was president? That that (laughs) happened?
1: Well, maybe in my reality. (laughs) No, you're right. Well, you're right about the time frame. I remember as we were making the film, the film of Haiku Tunnel, it was in 2000.
0: Yeah, that's when we made it.
1: So it was right on the cusp of one to the other. So it's about a tax problem that Josh had, where he didn't pay his taxes for seven years. And even one of the things about the time frame is that um, people ask us all the time if it's true what happened to Josh in terms of his tax, you know, uh, problems in the movie. And you know, as Josh said, he. It's, it's even worse than as it's depicted in the film. And the reason is is that the time frame was much longer that the tax problem had played out over. And you have some way of describing like the that if, if somebody was really paying attention, they could see that the interest had accrued over a longer time. Is that right?
0: Right, yeah. Well, because the, the actual—I ended yeah. up owing $80,000. That was com- for the federal— In real life. Yeah, in real life. For, uh, that was and for the federal fictionalized tax, one. And then the state taxes as, as you know from seeing the movie uh, that I— Initially, wrongly believed that our state tax agency was called the Franchise Tax Board, and I be- believed in my mind that it was this very lovely family, uh, the Franchises Mario and his and the rest of the uh, Franchise clan, who would personally do my tax. Anyhow, between the Franchises and the IRS, and then this lawyer that w- was supposed to help me with my tax problems, I ended up owing her a lot of money. It all added up to eighty thousand dollars. It took seven years to accumulate to that much, and in the movie. We made it one or two years, so I shrunk it to $50,000. So it's actually, when you see the movie of Love and Taxes, as I hope you do, it was actually worse than what you're saying.
2: Let's go back a little bit. Haiku, was that like the second or third monologue that you did then?
0: It was the second monologue I did. I did Josh Krumble's Daily World, starting in that basement for Enrico Banducci. And then the next year I wanted to try doing something. I thought, well, maybe the stories that I tell are only interesting when I'm, because my family's interesting. So I decided for my second piece, my first piece has been all about my mom and dad and my family and even my little brothers and sister. And then I, I decided, okay, I'm just, just gonna try to do a show that isn't about that at all. And in fact, it's kind of like a, a story, like it has some suspense in it and stuff. And I based it on what I was doing at the time, which was working as a legal secretary downtown. So that was in 1990 and that was uh, Haiku Tunnel, the Haiku Tunnel monologue. So yeah, that was my second piece.
2: And that piece eventually became a film directed by Jacob.
0: In 2000. Well, it came out in 2001, as we've said. And
2: the story of the making of the film is, in a sense, love and taxes.
0: Yes, it's, it's a big part of it.
2: It starts with your taxes, but then it goes to the film and everything that happens from the beginning to the end.
0: Well, it all gets tied together, really, because really... What happens in my character's life my character josh let's just say for the purposes of this discussion that this josh is actually based in the real me okay so in this in this story really all of the connections that he has that are about love the connections to his late father the connection to his little brother the and then his connection to this woman sarah that he falls in love with all of those get tied up with taxes in some way and because the fictional brother, as in real life, is my collaborator on a couple of movies. That's why the Haiku Tunnel movie becomes a part of it. It's just—it basically everything in, in Josh's life is colored by and threatened by his problems with taxes.
2: Putting aside the comically subjective point of view, how much of this is real?
0: A lot.
2: You actually did think it was the French franchisees.
0: I'm going to nolo contendere on that one. I'm okay. really. I'm going to. Or I'm going to take the. Can you just can take the fifth on a Pacifica station? I mean, you can can't. take
2: whatever number you want. Yeah,
0: because and... it's all listener supported. So what I'm saying is, what were you asking? What was the question? How real was it? Yeah. Well, as I said, we shaved thirty thousand dollars actually off of the amount that I owed. But we have characters. You see these two tax goddesses, uh, as we refer to them. These two women who are a couple who are lovely, and uh, my little brother in the movie sends me. He, they're his tax people he sends me to them the tax goddesses are real and they still do jake's taxes
1: i just sent them my taxes this morning by the way i sent the tax really goddesses. To rub to my it taxes. in
0: yeah. and i assume mo was real but the name has changed i really can't speak to that well you know what i think the audience will find helen shoemaker's performance to be so fantastic that they will just have the feeling that mo is real well she's great
2: she, is. she steals awesome. the movie
0: she does and i'd love for her to keep stealing our movies as long as we make movies
2: a couple other questions Spaulding gray you got to know him yeah and he was supportive of you
0: he was you know he he was a weird dude you know unlike the rest of us monologues uh, but, you know, he was he was a really intro- to me kind of in a weirdly he was a weirdly introverted guy who then had this extroverted persona that told stories but as i've said i totally admired his art And he showed me this form. And then it was, yes, very gratifying that he would come to my shows. And he would also tell other people that I was one of the... I I think he liked my shows. But I think he also appreciated... This was during a time when I was starting to do monologues when uh, a lot of comedians, a lot of people were doing one-person shows as another way to get on The Tonight Show or whatever. You know, it was was to package stand-up as a monologue. But they weren't actually in it for the monologuing. You know, that wasn't the, where their heart was. I mean, they could be great, but it wasn't. And and in fact, I was really trying to do and still try to do the thing that Spalding was doing. So I think he, he did appreciate that.
2: It's a borderline area. Uh, I don't want to get too far afield here, but I'm reminded of two, two people. David Sedaris told me, because he does something similar, only it's mostly in print, mm-hmm. that uh, he did a piece on Uh, French neighbors Mm -hmm. for the New Yorker and the New Yorker actually called the neighbors to fact check. Wow. And you contrast that with Mike Daisy.
0: Well, actually, the same thing happened uh, essentially was that the uh, people at, at This American Life did try to call, in just as they tried, uh, I'm guessing that David Sedaris's neighbors confirmed that they were in fact his neighbors. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> it didn't work Mike, out that well for For Mike. people who are listening, who may not know, you know, Mike Daisy uh, is a monologist as well, and he. He did a show uh, that was incredibly popular uh, about uh, Apple and about a very important subject, about making things for the comfort of people like us <laughs> around the world and people suffering in the making of those things. And so he told this story and then as a play, as a very powerful one-man show, and then he did a version of it on This American Life, the great radio show, and um, they asked him to verify that it was true, and he said it was, and then it turns out it wasn't all true, basically.
2: This is an interesting area, not only for you, Josh Cornbluth, but also for your brother, who has to deal with documentaries. I mean, mm-hmm. do you see that as a cautionary tale?
1: Well, you know, I can tell you, I, I work with Robert Reich pretty regularly these days. I've started Inequality Media with him, and we make short videos that are on uh, social media, mostly Facebook and YouTube and the like, and I made a feature film called Inequality for All with him and am now working on another one called Saving Capitalism with him. So I spent a lot of my time working on heavy political stories. And one of the real appeals of making Love and Taxes for me was it's fun. It still has politics at its heart. Josh is a very political person, but it's a personal comic way into you know, material and a point of view that I sort of like, uh, that I'm very excited to work in in a documentary space, this is a different way to get at the same material. So it all feels like storytelling to me. It doesn't feel like one kind of storytelling is over here and this kind is over there. It feels like they're very interconnected. But there was this point, okay. and there is this point, about linking the sort of documentary style that I've been sort of living in with telling a one-man, this story of a one-man show on stage, and that was a fascinating thing for me. That was about digging into how to tell a story that both puts you in the head of a storyteller, which I think I do with Reich as well as with Josh, but it's also about the documentary style, this style of sort of a verite handheld camera in a way, where we chose to shoot his live show like that. Often the kind of performance stuff has a kind of what you might consider the the um, comedy special language, the swooping crane and the wide shots of the audience. And instead, these are handheld close-ups. You've also got to make choices because
2: sometimes Josh is talking and we don't see the action. And other times we cut to the action. So both of you had to make choices. Are we going to... Show this sequence, or are we going to
1: tell this sequence? The perfor- yeah. yeah, the perform Basically, if, you know... The, the That's s-
0: the main, the, that was one of the main choices. So when, Yeah, you could you could
1: describe the film as a hybrid between a one-man show on stage and, like I said, subjectively comic reenactment scenes. And finding that tone of the scenes, this kind of what you might call hyper-real feel of the, the scenes with the other actors, really landed if you experienced the stuff on stage as the real kind of i guess you know the real stuff him telling the story on stage and then you cut to the scenes that were sort of these reenactment pieces. But the tone of working the two pieces together is really where the magic of, I think, what makes the film work, if it does, is like you haven't seen sort of those two things play together in exactly Meaning way. that
2: there's a lot of
0: editing that you had to do. And that our wonderful editors did.
1: Yeah. yeah. With the
2: sequences
1: that you reenacted and you went, oh, we can't do this? Yeah, to be honest, it took us eight years to make this movie, and we shot it very slowly. And for about six of them, the film didn't work because when you just see those comic reenactment scenes by themselves, they feel a little bit like they're pressed under glass in a way, like sort of like you're looking at a specimen that sort of didn't have any life in it. It wasn't until the very end that we found this balance between the storytelling on stage and the scenes. And that balance was kind of everything to making the and, film work. And
0: there's editing, with, as, you, as you've seen, you know, but there's editing in the movie that bounces back and within a scene, it bounces back and forth the on stage and the enactment.
2: Getting back to the franchises, if you just go right to that, it's not funny. Mm -hmm. But when you see you talking about it and the audience laughs and gets the joke, then you could move into the surrealism of seeing greeting
0: Mario at the door. You're right, Mario franchise. You're you're absolutely right. And you're talking about that is one of the big keys was how to make those decisions or by trying stuff and failing by trial and error, saying, okay, do we show this film scene? Do people laugh at it? Do they get it? And sometimes it works on its own. Sometimes it needs to be introduced. Sometimes a film scene needs a little bit of monologue put in the middle of it. And Jake really drove that mixture.
1: We talked earlier about the sort of difference between stand-up comedy and, and and monologues. And monologues have a storytelling rhythm and jokes have a sort of ba bum joke kind of rhythm to it. And when you don't have that... Usual rhythm for the joke. You have to find the comedy in a in a different way. What you're talking about is trying to capture the spirit of what it's like to see the live show as a movie, and that to me is like was an incredible challenge for this film. I'm really proud of the blend, but you're putting your finger on something that was very a very hard you know kind of uh, note to hit.
0: And it is also, and it is very gratifying now now that it's opened and people are seeing it. It's very very gratifying to see people going totally going with it and when we had our first couple screenings like test screenings when we added the live stuff you know jake and i would go up to the officer and say well did that work at all for you the, the sort of the going back and forth between the the live action and uh, between the reenactment and the live on stage they're like yeah it's fine we say so we don't need to explain it in the beginning of the movie or put in like some sort of title mm-hmm. sequence that they say? they said no it's just totally <laughs> I, I at least for me personally it took a while just to accept no, actually, it worked perfectly fine, and people intuitively got it immediately. and you know, it was, well, it's, and cause it, it, it just te- seemed so weird when we, <clears throat> when we were planning it.
1: And people ask us sometimes if there's anything we've disagreed about in the making of this film. And I will say, this might have been one of the things that was harder for Josh to understand. As a monologist, he thought that when you do a movie, you have to make it just a movie. And, you know... That's true. And what was really interesting was you know, the sense that it could be sort of both things at once, you could shoot a live show and have it be a movie, was something I had actually learned in the making of Inequality for All, if I could, you know, put it to that. What I had found is like, when I was making a movie about the economy, it wasn't a movie just about the economy and it wasn't just a movie about Robert Reich it was it didn't work until it was both in a way and in this particular case it couldn't just be a live show and it couldn't just be these reenacted scenes it had to be both and that had to live as some you had to hold that kind of thing in your head and I think that was hardest for you to recognize you No, know, I'm just around.
0: remembering it was cool as I'm just remembering Jay because you're talking about that the the way it worked is we, we met we uh, through uh, my son's friend from elementary school I met Robert Reich invited him to uh, be in our film he was in our film he worked with Jay Jake loved working with Jake, and they started collaborating on videos and on movies. And in fact, as Jake was alluding to earlier, they made this whole uh, documentary, uh, this wonderful, beautiful documentary, Inequality for All. Jake and Robert Reich did together a few years ago. And then, But I'm remembering now, as Jake was talking about it, that I would see the cuts, right? I would see the test cuts as Jake and Bob would show the cuts. And it was the question, just as Jake describes it, it was a question of, well, you have this really – Beautiful, in that film, personal stuff about Robert Reich and his history and his past and his childhood. Uh, And then you have an explanation of this enormously complicated issue of inequality and economics. And I remember watching it going, oh, the balance isn't right. You know, the balance isn't right. And I would see a screening. And then I saw it when it came out. And it was just right. You never noticed it. Like when the proportions were off. You would watch it and you go, oh, it's too long in this one and then it's going to that. And will these two kinds of forms work together? When it was right, it's just like that. You don't go like uh, – you don't eat a delicious peanut butter and jelly sandwich, which I happen to love uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and go, this doesn't make sense. I, I hope that these elements work together properly. You have it and it just all <laughs> works together. I'm sure that's a horrible analogy I just made, but it's a tasty one.
2: You're listening to an interview with Josh Kornbluth and Jacob Cornbluth whose film Love and Taxes is just coming out. Uh, that's going to be on video on demand
1: right now. It's in theaters. It's opening as we speak. And sometime soon,
0: sometime soon, it'll be like all over. It'll be video on demand and on the various places where you go for your fine movies uh, uh, to see them. It will be on demand. You might even find that even when you don't demand it, you'll end up <laughs> watching it. You'll, you, you may, in fact, by law, be forced to watch it in, in some future fascistic state. But really, that's not an energy I wanted to bring into this conversation. Fascism is on my mind these days, strangely enough, in America. I don't know why that is.
2: I once spoke with uh, Michael Ondaatje. He'd written a book about Walter Murch's editing. Mm-hmm. And what he said was that Murch knew in an edit that he had the right edit when he was going through it. And he
1: stopped at the same frame. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's how you know. I've never heard it described just that way, but it does feel... When you're watching a movie over and over again in an edit as a filmmaker, one of the real pleasures is you start to sort of listen to this voice that has like how quickly the story needs to progress. You start to have this sort of intuitive feeling in your bones. And so when that rhythm hits just right, the film does feel like it's working. So that's exactly what you were talking about there. And I've certainly experienced some version of that.
0: It's magical to be sitting with an editor and editors, I'm just in awe of them.
2: When you decided that you were going to do the reenactments, well, originally, of course, the monologue wasn't there, so the script was there anyway. you got a lot of Bay Area actors. Carrie Paff is in it, and Mm -hmm. I've seen her several times. Margot Hall was actually—I actually interviewed her once. Oh,
0: Margot. What a great actor. Nick Pelzard. He auditioned for that part in— We'd seen a number of other people, and then he did it. And I, I seen. Hmm. I looked over Jake, and we were both crying. I say, okay, that's a good sign. I'd say it's a good. I think maybe we should go with Nick Pelksar, the one who makes us cry. Robert Reich.
2: How did he feel as
0: an actor? Oh, he was great. I mean, he's he's a talented dude. You know, I understand he also has some other skills. You know, economically, but he is he's really talented. I mean, seriously, he's in in the movie, in the videos and and the documentaries that that Jake has been making with him. I mean, he's always fantastic, fantastic presence. But he also is a ham and loves acting. And so he was great.
1: Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, meeting Robert Reich, for me, we initially connected over a sense of humor. He's incredibly funny and incredibly warm a sense guard. of humor. Yeah. And it was really, you know, that that sort of brought us together and helped us to sort of figure out a way to work together and make all the documentaries and videos we make.
2: So. And a dog that I occasionally <laughs> dog sat, a very, very old dog named Izzy, is in like a tenth of a second in there.
0: But that tenth of a second, I think, is crucial to the film. If Izzy the dog had not given that 10th of a second performance, I think the rest of the brilliance would have been
1: lost. It really ties the film together. You know, it's funny. You, you get back to to get back to Carrie and Nick and Helen Shoemaker, who's in the film, and Robert Reich. I mean, all of these were people who live in the Bay Area, which is where we both, Josh and I, both live. And when you think about it, the process of casting was as organic as the making of the film. We had all these people who were close by. Why don't we have them come out and and be in a scene with us? The dog, you know, the people. A lot of people volunteered their times. A lot of people gave of themselves in a way. And it was really something in a, both the casting process and because I don't think you see these actors in a package like this in movies very much these days. It feels sort of like you're seeing a fresh new world created for you, if it works, that you you don't really get exposed to. It's not like Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, although we should maybe we should say they it's show it's up. It's much it. sexier than yeah. that. <laughs> but, but, um,
2: why yeah. did you choose not to play yourself?
1: I like being behind the camera, honestly. I think my bliss is in storytelling... It's a cerebral kind of bliss versus a kind of performative bliss. I—it's funny. I used to play music when I started out in you know sort of my career path, and I was like in a band, and I very much loved being on stage in a band. So it's not like I'm super shy in that way. But I was never and have never been an actor. I've never liked to pretend in that way. I feel like I like to try to be authentic in every single second of my life and day, and so acting was never my thing. But I feel like as an observer, what I like seeing is, you know, having what they call a BS meter sometimes as a director or somebody who can see a thing and see if it's fake or not as when you watch a performance. And that's what I love to do. I love to sort of feel like, you know, the tone is really something I guard versus I don't want to perform myself.
2: Josh Kornbluth, you've done this and you've done little bits of acting. So were you basically playing the same character?
0: As on stage or as me? As
2: you. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of odd. You're playing you, but you're not
0: playing you. I'm really fascinated by it, I guess, maybe because it's what I do. But when I go up on stage and I am this character, Josh Cornbluth, telling stories about this character, Josh Cornbluth. my name actually is Josh Cornbluth, and I do look like me and all those things. But in my experience, when you go up on stage, when you tell a story, when you shape a story, when you hold the attention of an audience, you are a character. I believe, in my experience, that I am... Necessarily, like I could not be a character when I'm on stage performing, even though I happen to play Josh Cornbluth and not Iago, you know, to pick a very similar character.
2: So, who is the Josh Cornbluth I'm talking to now?
0: This Josh Cornbluth likes long walks on the beach, wraps, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, sandwich wraps from uh, Trader Joe's. No, uh this, no, this is this is me. I mean, this is where I'm not. Pref- Performing, I'm you know we're talking, and then there's the me that performs on stage and is doing a show like a story, and and then and then in the movie it is different too because it's it's not continuous as it's shot, and also the energy is different, and you're doing it without an audience. So I'd say that that is another variant of my persona.
2: So that means in a way, I mean not to get too meta about this, but in a way, the Josh that we're seeing on in the reenactments is. More or less, the Josh that we're seeing on stage, who is not necessarily the Josh that I'm
1: talking to now.
0: I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna let my brother go on with this one because <laughs> I just, my my brain just stopped being able to encompass that.
1: Well, there there is a thing about, uh, you know, how do you find something authentic? If that's kind of what you're getting to, and I think what we found in the making of the film, to go back to making of Love and Taxes, was it felt most authentic. Lee, Josh on the stage, or felt more kind of... What it is, is it's a very true state for Josh. I don't know if it's exactly who he is all the time. We all have right. these different selves or whatever. But, you know, he feels very much comfortable on stage telling a story. The challenge of making a movie about not paying your taxes, about doing something that isn't an active thing, is also... Like a very active thing when it's done on stage, when the character is describing it to you, when you see a a performer telling you about not paying their taxes. That's very different than seeing a guy not putting an envelope in a mailbox. It feels much more fun and active. So Mm -hmm. we needed the stuff on stage. I used to think of it as the grounding, like the real stuff so that you could have the sort of made up, you know, kind of reenacted scenes come up over the top of it.
2: There are also two kinds of reenacted scenes. There are the reenacted scenes that are actually like a movie scene. Like to pick an example, when Josh tells his wife, his fiance, that he actually hasn't done anything and it's not in control. And that's a real acting scene as Mm -hmm. opposed to being trailed by 30 dogs, including Izzy.
0: Yeah. For me, it was really Izzy and the rest of them. I really, you know, <laughs> I just really focused on Izzy. Yeah, um, yeah. No, actually, that's a very cool point, and it's a different style of acting. I remember when we were doing, when Jake and I were shooting and planning on, and well, Jake essentially was planning, but we were, you know, figuring out how to do the scene. The scene with the dogs, with Izzy and the other dogs, is a scene in which uh, it's a humorous depiction of uh, of me saying that when I, when I filed, when I filed my taxes. Everything just got great like including that like I'd be followed around the mission district by dogs and people and and I got a girlfriend and I, my show did better and did well you know. and so yes and that is a cartoonish sort of style that uh, that Jake you know got in there and then the other scene that you referred to which is when my character has to finally come clean to his love and say that well you know when I said I was really in control of my taxes before uh, I'm not really in control of my text. I'm not in control at all. That was in fact a dramatic scene and yeah it's, it's different kinds of acting. I didn't really think about it before and, and, and I think it's it, you know the pressure was on Jake the director to make all the different kinds of performances mesh.
2: Is that the reason why it
1: didn't work without the monologue? Because you couldn't cut from one to the other? It's one of the factors that went into it. I mean, what really is true is that there is Josh in 1965 with his father in New York City. There is Josh in modern-day New York City. There is all of these different cities and places going to Washington, D.C., and we didn't have the budget to do these things, so we had to kind of envision it. And I have to tell you, the best music for me when I'm listening to music and the best performing when I watch it is I'm making something in my head. I see something. I feel something. And what we tried to do and what I tried to do with the film, with these reenactments, is make them look exactly like it felt to me to listen to the story told to me. And New York City, to me, felt beautiful. And there's this beautiful animation piece when we go into what we call Cornbluthia in the film, like this, uh, he talks about it as the floating socialist republic of Cornbluthia of as he travels with his father through the city of New York. We wanted it to feel magical and wonderful. And so we created... Uh, animation world that they are in around it and then you have the, a different kind of reenactment in which is much more real and it's meant to be like the world is more uh, I guess you know I guess real Is like I said so all of those had just a different kind of tone each reenactment had just the perfect tone and that took a long time to nail
2: one of the things that cracked me up is there's a sequence in option yes, world and the sign is outside the window and like then, the
0: Hollywood sign it's basically the Hollywood sign except yeah, it says yeah, option and, world
2: and it's one reality, and then someone moves it away yeah. and realizes that
1: it's in the studio.
0: <laughs> yeah, thank you. That that's actually very gratifying. That's just a, one of the many, many little moments that. Who
1: saw yeah, that in the film? In, that was actually in the script. That one. That one. Many of these things were sort of discovered, you know, in the sort of creation of it. But in the script was a moment where. A guy wheels away the backdrop of, you know, Option World off camera. Now, technically, that was impossible to do when the (laughs) script was written, but we figured out a way to do it. Uh, How'd, How'd you do it? Several layers of green screen. I noticed that there are points where you're on stage and the stage
2: is green. And I thought, oh, this makes it easier for them
0: yeah you think it was yeah it was was, actually worse for us because it it wasn't meant to be green it was right The the, when it went right when it's green on stage we actually don't want green screen so (laughs) but it looks like green screen so you're going they intended this to be green screen but they just left in the green screen
2: yeah my friend Cher was in the audience she said that you had to do the monologues multiple times and get the audience to laugh at the appropriate moments (laughs) which they said was very difficult
0: that makes it sound really pathetic uh and it wasn't, I don't think it was that, but that. No, what we did is I wasn't doing the whole monologues. I was just doing little sections of them, and we were shooting from different angles. So the fact is that I would have to say, right, I'd have to say a line over and over and over again out of context. And then we, would, the audience would have to do a reaction shot and go, oh, that is funny. That thing I've now heard 39,000 times in a <laughs> row from and Wallace Beach up a different And It took a lot of talented extras to pull that off.
2: But that's also how movies work. Yeah. It is, that's yeah. That's
0: always. There's a lot of fake stuff going on. You just you know, when you really see behind.
2: Constructed
1: realities, yeah. um,
2: The film, Love and Taxes, it sounds as if, Jake, that you suddenly became a filmmaker <laughs> <laughs> behind Poof. the camera, but in point
1: of fact, you have more history than just filming Haiku Tunnel. I didn't go to film school. I, I had no formal training. I actually went to a Mike Lee film festival and thought for the first time that I could see something like a voice that was um that sort of spoke to how i saw the world and i thought if i can do that in film i want to do film i'm dying to get into film so i actually did in a way i mean the, the story sort of comically p- depicts me going into the film industry and then learning all the different jobs in the film industry but in a very quick succession i did go into the film industry and just learn i sat on sets and i watched people do it and i saw how they lit s- sets i saw how they constructed shoots and I basically taught myself how to make these things. And then at some point, and it's compressed in the film, but at some point I had sort of an epiphany. I thought, hey, I know how to do this now. I'm ready to do this. And I did come to Josh and I think say some version of, as the character Jake says in the film, hey, forget this Hollywood stuff about how you, you want to make a f- uh, film with a studio. Let's make it. Let me do it. I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah, pretty much happened that, like
0: that. I mean, we compress it some In the movie but it sort of happened like that jake uh worked his way up taught himself all these aspects of of filmmaking of film production and filmmaking and then said yeah let's make this movie josh and i said really us and then we did
2: there's a sequence where he signs away haiku tunnel to mo and then he pays her back but the way it's set up, it sounds as if she just owned the film instead.
0: The way it's set up is that she would have owned the film. She would have owned the if film. If Josh had been unable to pay her back, pay right. her what? Is Is that letter. real, by the way? I, that... I really couldn't say. It's so long ago.
2: Jacob Cornbluth, what do you got coming up next? You said that there's a film called Saving Capitalism. That's yeah. a full-length film?
1: Yeah, it's a feature documentary, again, with Robert Reich and I'm finishing up Saving Capitalism Now with the hopes that it will be out very soon and it should be coming it's a Netflix original film, so it will be out on Netflix as soon as we can finish it. Those short films with Robert Reich, where can yeah. people see them? I'm particularly proud of this work. It's through a nonprofit I founded with Robert Reich called Inequality Media and Last year in 2016, our videos got seen 100 million times, over 100 million times. And this year, it's at a accelerated pace from there. I think, you know, all the views of those videos speaks to the uncertainty. So many people feel politically about our times. But at least on a personal level, it feels meaningful to be able to do something about what's going on out there. And we put out a video just about every week on Robert Reich's Facebook page, robertreich.org, and often with collaborators like MoveOn. Uh, dot .org and um, you can also find us at inequality media which is on Facebook and uh, you know inequalitymedia.org so that's where people could watch
2: older ones they can one. watch
1: all the videos yep
2: and your name appears on them or just I'm
1: we have credits at the end of every video so just about all of them I'm listed as the director I think all of them maybe so anyway yeah I'm in I'm in there how long are they each one just about, our target length is 3 minutes they they vary from like 2 to about four and a half at the longest but we found that at three minutes what you get exactly is it doesn't feel like a 60second ad on TV and it doesn't feel and it feels like a short enough period of time where you can get in some depth and some content and people can get back to their workday so it ends before they they say oh three minutes I can do that you know
2: uh-huh. well I do um, theater reviews on our on our morning show here on KPFA and if I'm just Sometimes I've looked actuality, and then I go over. But I can't go over about 320 or 330 because
1: then it just gets too long. It gets too long. There's a natural length to them. And it, it does feel like this has sort of become a sweet spot that I've found and that now I think is something that these videos all sort of target. They seem to all be sort of going for about a three-minute length. Um, but I've been doing them for nine years now, so so I've been at it for a while. Well, they've become far more important since absolutely since the torture of the fall it's 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 a it's a terrible time in certain ways, and it feels also exhilarating to be working in this political space when it feels like people are waking up in a way, if that makes any sense. And you you hope you wish it didn't take something like this, but um but the energy of the resistance is growing.
2: And Josh Cornbluth on the bio page for one of the bio pages I saw, you're working on two more monologues, one about the Zen Hospice Project and the other about dementia?
0: Yes, I thought taxes was too cheerful a topic. And so i I, I thought going to death and then to dementia would really lift people's spirits as they came to follow my work. no, i they actually are really sort of uplifting subjects to me. I, a few years ago, was invited to be the first artist in residence at the Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco, and I did that for six months. And then since then, I have been continued to be a volunteer once once a week, and I love it. I, I love the Zen Hospice Project. That people are there, and the residents who come through, and I've made great friends and learned so much, and and about life and about death. And so I'm doing my next piece, which I'm closing in on. I'm I, I'm hoping it'll come out uh, in the Bay Area this year, and it's called The Bottomless Bowl, and it's about my experiences at the Zen Hospice Project. And then I got this other really cool gig uh, being a visiting scholar, actually, which is uh, kind of a weird term for someone who didn't graduate from college, but I'm a visiting scholar at the Memory and Aging Center at at UCSF. There's actually something within there uh, called the Global Brain Health Initiative where they want people to come in and learn about dementia and brain health and then spread the word in whatever way they can. So my way of spreading the word is that I'm going to do a monologue probably in a year or so based on the experiences I'm having this year at this incredible place that studies dementia. And I'm also working with people there who have dementia and their caregivers on telling their own stories. And that has been just a fabulous experience
1: as well.
2: Oh, the two of you, now that Love and Taxes has come out, are the two of you
1: going to collaborate again?
0: Oh, we'll just have to see. I'm sure. I'm well, sh- Frank, I'm,
1: no yeah. way. You know, like working with. No, yeah, yeah. I, I'd, I'd love to actually. I think there is, you know, a value in this, and it's not just because we're brothers. It's because I think that there's a, a synergy in terms of how we see the world that actually does work creatively, even if we weren't related. Which is, I see the world as through a filmmaker's eyes. He sees the world as a storyteller, and I feel like it's a good combination. So
0: I do too. I I, I second that
1: heartily. <laughs>
2: You've been listening to an interview with Josh Kornbluth and Jacob Kornbluth. Their film, Love and Taxes, is in theaters. Uh, You can find out where it's playing, when it's playing, and who knows? They might show up by going to loveandtaxesmovie.com. It will be on on on-demand at some point. Who knows? Maybe even Netflix.
1: I think so. Oh, yeah. I think uh, it's definitely in play. They, the rules are like 60 days after the theatrical window uh, closes or something, so they let it run in theaters and then 60 days after that.
2: To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.